0: Welcome to Radio Read-Along, a podcast for the whole family, featuring dramatic word-for-word readings of classic stories for all ages. In today's episode, Adam Andrews reads chapters 1 and 2 of The Mysterious Affair at Styles" by Agatha Christie. You can follow along in your own copy of the story, or sit back, relax, and let your mind's eye do the work. THE MYSTERIOUS AFFAIR AT STYLES by Agatha Christie CHAPTER One. I GO TO STYLES The intense interest aroused in the public by what was known at the time as the Styles case has now somewhat subsided. Nevertheless, in view of the worldwide notoriety which attended to it, I have been asked— both by my friend Poirot and the family themselves, to write an account of the whole story. This, we trust, will effectually silence the sensational rumors which still persist. I will therefore briefly set down the circumstances which led to my being connected with the affair. I had been invalided home from the front, and, after spending some months in a rather depressing convalescent home, was given a month's sick leave. Having no near relations or friends, I was trying to make up my mind what to do, when I ran across John Cavendish. I had seen very little of him for some years-indeed, I had never known him particularly well. He was a good fifteen years my senior, for one thing, though he hardly looked his forty five years. As a boy, though, I had often stayed at Stiles, his mother's place, in Essex. We had a good yarn about old times and it ended in his inviting me down to Stiles to spend my leave there. "'The Major will be delighted to see you again, after all those years,' he added. "'Your mother keeps well?' I asked. "'Oh, yes. I suppose you know that she's married again?' I'm afraid I showed my surprise rather plainly. Mrs. Cavendish, who had married John's father when he was a widower with two sons, had been a handsome woman of middle age as I remembered her she certainly could not be a day less than seventy now. I recalled her as an energetic, autocratic personality, somewhat inclined to charitable and social notoriety, with a fondness for opening bazaars and playing the lady bountiful. She was a most generous woman, and possessed a considerable fortune of her own. Their country place, Styles Court, had been purchased by Mr. Cavendish early in their married life— He had been completely under his wife's ascendancy, so much so that on dying he left the place to her for her lifetime, as well as the larger part of his income, an arrangement that was distinctly unfair to his two sons. Their stepmother, however, had always been most generous to them. Indeed, they were so young at the time of their father's remarriage that they always thought of her as their own mother. Lawrence, the younger, had been a delicate youth. He had qualified as a doctor, but early relinquished the profession of medicine, and lived at home while pursuing literary ambitions, though his verses never had any marked success. John practiced for some time as a barrister, but had finally settled down to the more congenial life of a country squire. He had married two years ago, and had taken his wife to live at Styles though I entertained a shrewd suspicion that he would have preferred his mother to increase his allowance, which would have enabled him to have a home of his own. Mrs. Cavendish, however, was a lady who liked to make her own plans, and expected other people to fall in with them, and in this case she certainly had the whip-hand, namely the purse-strings. John noticed my surprise at the news of his mother's remarriage, and smiled rather ruefully. "'Rotten little bounder, too,' he said savagely." I can tell you, Hastings, it's making life jolly difficult for us. As for Evie, you remember Evie? No. Oh, I suppose she was after your time. She's the mater's factotum, companion, jack-of-all-trades. A great sport, old Evie. Not precisely young and beautiful, but as game as they make them. You were going to say? Oh, this fellow. He turned up from nowhere on the pretext of being a second cousin or something of Evie's, though she didn't seem particularly keen to acknowledge the relationship. "'The fellow is an absolute outsider. Anyone can see that. He's got a great black beard and wears patent leather boots in all weathers. But the mater caught into him at once, took him on as secretary. You know how she's always running a hundred societies?' I nodded. "'Well, of course the war has turned the hundreds into thousands. "'No doubt the fellow was very useful to her. "'But you could have knocked us all down with a feather "'when three months ago she suddenly announced "'that she and Alfred were engaged. "'The fellow must be at least twenty years younger than she is. "'It's simply bare-faced fortune-hunting. "'But there you are. "'She is her own mistress, and she's married him. "'It must be a difficult situation for you all.' "'Difficult? It's damnable!' Thus it came about that three days later I descended from the train at Styles St. Mary, an absurd little station, with no apparent reason for existence, perched up in the midst of green fields and country lanes. John Cavendish was waiting on the platform, and piloted me out to the car. "'Got a drop or two of petrol still, you see,' he remarked, mainly owing to the mater's activities.' The village of Stiles St. Mary was situated about two miles from the little station, and Stiles Court lay a mile the other side of it. It was a still, warm day in early July. As one looked out over the flat Essex country, lying so green and peaceful under the afternoon sun, it seemed almost impossible to believe that not so very far away a great war was running its appointed course. I felt I had suddenly strayed into another world. As we turned in at the lodge gates, John said, "'I'm afraid you'll find it very quiet down here, Hastings.' "'My dear fellow, that's just what I want.' "'Oh, it's pleasant enough if you want to lead the idle life. I drill with the volunteers twice a week and lend a hand at the farms. My wife works regularly on the land. She's up at five every morning to milk and keeps at it steadily until lunchtime. It's a jolly good life, taking it all round,' If it weren't for that fellow, Alfred Inglethorpe. He checked the car suddenly and glanced at his watch. I wonder if we've time to pick up Cynthia. No, she'll have started from the hospital by now. Cynthia? That's not your wife? No, Cynthia's a protege of my mother's, the daughter of an old schoolfellow of hers who married a rascally solicitor. He came a cropper, and the girl was left an orphan and penniless. My mother came to the rescue, and Cynthia has been with us nearly two years now. She works in the Red Cross Hospital at Tadminster, seven miles away. As he spoke the last words, we drew up in front of the fine old house. A lady in a stout tweed skirt, who was bending over a flower bed, straightened herself at our approach. "'Hello, Evie. Here's our wounded hero. Mr. Hastings, Miss Howard.' Miss Howard shook hands with a hearty, almost painful grip. I had an impression of very blue eyes and a sunburnt face. She was a pleasant-looking woman of about forty, with a deep voice almost manly in its stentorian tones, and had a large, sensible, square body with feet to match, these last encased in good thick boots. Her conversation, I soon found, was couched in the telegraphic style. Weeds grow like house afire. fire can't keep even with them. "'She'll press you in. Better be careful.' "'I'm sure I shall be only too delighted to make myself useful,' I responded. "'Don't say it. Never does. Wish you hadn't later.' "'You're a cynic, Evie,' said John, laughing. "'Where's tea today? Inside or out?' "'Out. Too fine a day to be cooped up in the house.' "'Come on, then. You've done enough gardening for today. "'The laborer is worthy of his hire, you know. Come and be refreshed.' "'Well,' said Miss Howard.' Drawing off her gardening gloves, I'm inclined to agree with you. She led the way round the house to where tea was spread under the shade of a large sycamore. A figure rose from one of the basket chairs and came a few steps to meet us. My wife, Hastings, said John. I shall never forget my first sight of Mary Cavendish. Her tall, slender form outlined against the bright light. The vivid sense of slumbering fire that seemed to find expression only in those wonderful tawny eyes of hers, remarkable eyes, different from any other woman's that I have ever known. The intense power of stillness she possessed, which nevertheless conveyed the impression of a wild, untamed spirit in an exquisitely civilized body. All these things are burnt into my memory. I shall never forget them. She greeted me with a few words of pleasant welcome in a low, clear voice, and I sank into a basket chair, feeling distinctly glad that I had accepted John's invitation. Mrs. Cavendish gave me some tea, and her few quiet remarks heightened my first impression of her as a thoroughly fascinating woman. An appreciative listener is always stimulating, and I described in a humorous manner certain incidents of my convalescent home— in a way which, I flatter myself, greatly amused my hostess. John, of course, good fellow though he is, could hardly be called a brilliant conversationalist. At that moment a well-remembered voice floated through the open French window near at hand. "'Then you'll write to the princess after tea, Alfred. I'll write to Lady Tadminster for the second day myself. Or shall we wait until we hear from the princess?' In case of a refusal, Lady Tadminster might open it the first day, and Missus Crosby the second. then there's the Duchess about the school fete There was the murmur of a man's voice, and then Missus Inglethorpe's rose in reply, "Yes, certainly, after tea will do quite well. You are so thoughtful, Alfred, dear." The French window swung open a little wider, and a handsome white haired old lady with a somewhat masterful cast of features. "'stepped out of it onto the lawn. "'A man followed her, "'a suggestion of deference in his manner. "'Mrs. Inglethorpe greeted me with effusion. "'Why, if it isn't too delightful "'to see you again, Mr. Hastings, "'after all these years! "'Alfred, darling, Mr. Hastings! "'My husband!' "'I looked with some curiosity "'at Alfred, darling. "'He certainly struck a rather alien note. "'I did not wonder at John objecting "'to his beard,' It was one of the longest and blackest I had ever seen. He wore gold-rimmed pince-nez, and had a curious impassivity of feature. It struck me that he might look natural on a stage, but was strangely out of place in real life. His voice was rather deep and unctuous. He placed a wooden hand in mine and said, This is a pleasure, Mr. Hastings. Then, turning to his wife, Emily, dearest, I think that cushion is a little damp. "'She beamed fondly on him as he substituted another "'with every demonstration of the tenderest care. "'Strange infatuation of an otherwise sensible woman.' "'With the presence of Mr. Inglethorpe, "'a sense of constraint and veiled hostility "'seemed to settle down upon the company. "'Miss Howard, in particular, "'took no pains to conceal her feelings. "'Mrs. Inglethorpe, however, "'seemed to notice nothing unusual.' Her volubility, which I remembered of old, had lost nothing in the intervening years, and she poured out a steady flood of conversation, mainly on the subject of the forthcoming bazaar which she was organizing and which was to take place shortly. Occasionally she referred to her husband over a question of dates or days. His watchful and attentive manner never varied From the very first I took a firm and rooted dislike to him, and I flatter myself that my first judgments are usually fairly shrewd. Presently Mrs. Inglethorpe turned to give some instructions about letters to Evelyn Howard, and her husband addressed me in his painstaking voice. "'Is soldiering your regular profession, Mr. Hastings?' "'No. Before the war I was in Lloyd's.' "'And you will return there after it is over?' Perhaps, either that or a fresh start altogether. Mary Cavendish leant forward. What would you really choose as a profession if you could just consult your inclination? Well, that depends. No secret hobby, she asked. Tell me, you're drawn to something. Everyone is. Usually something absurd. You'll laugh at me, she smiled. Perhaps. "'Well, I've always had a secret hankering to be a detective. "'The real thing? Scotland Yard? Or Sherlock Holmes?' "'Oh, Sherlock Holmes, by all means. "'But really, seriously, I am awfully drawn to it. "'I came across a man in Belgium once, a very famous detective, "'and he quite inflamed me. "'He was a marvellous little fellow. "'He used to say that all good detective work was a mere matter of method. "'My system is based on his,' though, of course, I have progressed rather further. He was a funny little man, a great dandy, but wonderfully clever. "'Like a good detective story myself,' remarked Miss Howard. "'Lots of nonsense written, though. Criminal discovered in last chapter, everyone dumbfounded. Real crime, you'd know at once.' "'There have been a great number of undiscovered crimes,' I argued. "'Don't mean the police, but the people that are right in it, the family. You couldn't really hoodwink them. They'd know.' Then, I said, much amused, you think that if you were mixed up in a crime, say a murder, you'd be able to spot the murderer right off? Of course I should. Mightn't be able to prove it to a pack of lawyers, but I'm certain I'd know. I'd feel it in my fingertips if he came near me. It might be a she, I suggested. Might, but murder is a violent crime. Associate it more with a man. Not in a case of poisoning, Mrs. Cavendish's clear voice startled me. Dr. Bowerstein was saying yesterday that, owing to the general ignorance of the more uncommon poisons among the medical profession, there were probably countless cases of poisoning quite unsuspected. "'Why, Mary, what a gruesome conversation!' cried Mrs. Inglethorpe. "'It makes me feel as if a goose were walking over my grave. "'Oh, there's Cynthia!' A young girl in V.A.D. uniform ran lightly across the lawn. "'Why, Cynthia, you are late today!' "'This is Mr. Hastings, Miss Murdoch. "'Cynthia Murdoch was a fresh-looking young creature, "'full of life and vigor. "'She tossed off her little V.A.D. cap, "'and I admired the great loose waves of her auburn hair "'and the smallness and whiteness of the hand "'she held out to claim her tea. "'With dark eyes and eyelashes, she would have been a beauty. "'She flung herself down on the ground beside John.' and as I handed her a plate of sandwiches, she smiled up at me. "'Sit down here on the grass, do. It's ever so much nicer.' I dropped down obediently. "'You work at Tadminster, don't you, Miss Murdoch? she nodded. "'For my sins.' "'Do they bully you, then?' I asked, smiling. "'I should like to see them,' cried Cynthia with dignity. "'I've got a cousin who is nursing,' I remarked, "'and she is terrified of sisters.' "'I don't wonder.' "'Sisters are, you know, Mr. Hastings. "'They simply are. "'You've no idea. "'But I'm not a nurse, thank heaven. "'I work in the dispensary.' "'How many people do you poison?' "'I asked, smiling. "'Cynthia smiled, too. "'Oh, hundreds, she said. "'Cynthia,' called Mrs. Inglethorpe, "'do you think you could write a few notes for me?' "'Certainly, Aunt Emily.' "'She jumped up promptly, "'and something in her manner reminded me "'that her position was a dependent one.' and that Mrs. Inglethorpe, kind as she might be in the main, did not allow her to forget it. My hostess turned to me. "'John will show you your room. Supper is at half-past seven. We have given up late dinner for some time now. Lady Tadminster, our member's wife—she was the late Lord Abbotsbury's daughter—does the same. She agrees with me that one must set an example of economy. We are quite a war household. Nothing is wasted here.' Every scrap of waste paper, even, is saved and sent away in sacks. I expressed my appreciation, and John took me into the house and up the broad staircase, which forked right and left halfway to different wings of the building. My room was in the left wing and looked out over the park. John left me, and a few minutes later I saw him from my window walking slowly across the grass, arm in arm with Cynthia Murdoch. I heard Mrs. Inglethorpe call, "'Cynthia!' impatiently, and the girl started and ran back to the house. At the same moment, a man stepped out from the shadow of a tree and walked slowly in the same direction. He looked about forty, very dark, with a melancholy, clean-shaven face. Some violent emotion seemed to be mastering him. He looked up at my window as he passed, and I recognized him, "'though he had changed much in the fifteen years that had elapsed since we last met. "'It was John's younger brother, Lawrence Cavendish. "'I wondered what it was that had brought that singular expression to his face. "'Then I dismissed him from my mind and returned to the contemplation of my own affairs. "'The evening passed pleasantly enough, "'and I dreamed that night of that enigmatical woman, Mary Cavendish.' The next morning dawned bright and sunny, and I was full of the anticipation of a delightful visit. I did not see Mrs. Cavendish until lunchtime, when she volunteered to take me for a walk, and we spent a charming afternoon roaming in the woods, returning to the house about five. As we entered the large hall, John beckoned us both into the smoking-room. I saw at once by his face that something disturbing had occurred. We followed him in, and he shut the door after us. "'Look here, Mary, there's the deuce of a mess. "'Evie's had a row with Alfred Inglethorpe, and she's off.' "'Evie? Off?' John nodded gloomily. "'Yes. You see, she went to the mater, and—oh, here's Evie herself.' Miss Howard entered. Her lips were set grimly together, and she carried a small suitcase. She looked excited and determined, and slightly on the defensive— At any rate, she burst out, I've spoken my mind. My dear Evelyn, cried Miss Cavendish, this can't be true. Miss Howard nodded grimly. True enough. Afraid I said some things to Emily she won't forget or forgive in a hurry. Don't mind if they've only sunk in a bit. Probably water off a duck's back, though. I said right out, you're an old woman, Emily, and there's no fool like an old fool. The man's twenty years younger than you, and don't you fool yourself as to what he married you for. Money. Well, don't let him have too much of it. "'Farmer Rakes has got a very pretty young wife. "'Just ask your Alfred how much time he spends over there.' "'She was very angry. Natural. "'I went on. "'I'm going to warn you whether you like it or not. "'That man would as soon murder you in your bed as look at you. "'He's a bad lot. "'You can say what you like to me, but remember what I've told you. "'He's a bad lot.' "'What did she say?' "'Miss Howard made an extremely expressive grimace. "'Darling Alfred!' dearest Alfred, wicked calumnies, wicked lies, wicked woman, to accuse her dear husband. The sooner I left her house, the better. So I'm off. But not now. This minute. For a moment, we sat and stared at her. Finally, John Cavendish, finding his persuasions of no avail, went off to look up the trains. His wife followed him, murmuring something about persuading Mrs. Inglethorpe to think better of it. As she left the room, Miss Howard's face changed. She leaned towards me eagerly. Mr. Hastings, you're honest. Can I trust you? I was a little startled. She laid her hand on my arm and sank her voice to a whisper. Look after her, Mr. Hastings. My poor Emily. There are a lot of sharks, all of them. Oh, I know what I'm talking about. There isn't one of them that's not hard up and trying to get money out of her. I've protected her as much as I could. Now I'm out of the way, they'll impose upon her. Of course, Miss Howard, I said. I'll do everything I can, but I'm sure you're excited and overwrought. She interrupted me by slowly shaking her forefinger. Young man, trust me. I've lived in the world rather longer than you have. All I ask you is to keep your eyes open. You'll see what I mean. The throb of the motor came through the open window, and Miss Howard rose and moved to the door. John's voice sounded outside. With her hand on the handle, she turned her head over her shoulder and beckoned to me. "'Above all, Mr. Hastings, watch that devil, her husband!' There was no time for more. Miss Howard was swallowed up in an eager chorus of protests and goodbyes. The Inglethorpes did not appear. As the motor drove away, Mrs. Cavendish suddenly detached herself from the group and moved across the drive to the lawn to meet a tall, bearded man who had been evidently making for the house. The color rose in her cheeks as she held out her hand to him. "'Who is that?' I asked sharply, for instinctively I distrusted the man. "'That's Dr. Bowerstein,' said John shortly. "'And who is Dr. Bowerstein?' "'He's staying in the village doing a rest cure after a bad, nervous breakdown. "'He's a London specialist, a very clever man, "'one of the greatest living experts on poisons, I believe.' and he's a great friend of Mary's, put in Cynthia, the irrepressible. John Cavendish frowned and changed the subject. Come for a stroll, Hastings. This has been a most rotten business. She always had a rough tongue, but there's no stauncher friend in England than Evelyn Howard. He took the path through the plantation, and we walked down to the village, through the woods which bordered one side of the estate. As we passed through one of the gates on our way home again— a pretty young woman of gypsy type, coming in the opposite direction, bowed and smiled. That's a pretty girl, I remarked appreciatively. John's face hardened. That is Mrs. Rake's. The one that Miss Howard— Exactly, said John, with rather unnecessary abruptness. I thought of the white-haired old lady in the big house, and that vivid, wicked little face that had just smiled into ours, and a vague chill of foreboding crept over me. I brushed it aside. Styles is really a glorious old place, I said to John. He nodded rather gloomily. Yes, it's a fine property. It'll be mine some day. It should be mine now by rights if my father had only made a decent will. And then I shouldn't be so damned hard up as I am now. Hard up, are you? My dear Hastings, I don't mind telling you that I'm at my wit's end for money. Couldn't your brother help you? Lawrence? He's gone through every penny he ever had, publishing rotten verses in fancy bindings. No, we're an impecunious lot. My mother's always been awfully good to us, I must say. That is, up to now. Since her marriage, of course. He broke off, frowning. For the first time, I felt that with Evelyn Howard, something indefinable had gone from the atmosphere. Her presence had spelt security. Now that security was removed and the air seemed rife with suspicion. The sinister face of Dr. Bauerstein recurred to me unpleasantly. A vague suspicion of everyone and everything filled my mind. Just for a moment I had a premonition of approaching evil. Chapter 2 The 16th and 17th of July I had arrived at Stiles on the 5th of July, I come now to the events of the sixteenth and seventeenth of that month. For the convenience of the reader, I will recapitulate the incidents of those days in as exact a manner as possible. They were elicited subsequently at the trial by a process of long and tedious cross-examinations. I received a letter from Evelyn Howard a couple of days after her departure, telling me she was working as a nurse at the big hospital in Midlingham a manufacturing town some fifteen miles away, and begging me to let her know if Mrs. Inglethorpe should show any wish to be reconciled. The only fly in the ointment of my peaceful days was Mrs. Cavendish's extraordinary and, for my part, unaccountable preference for the society of Dr. Bowerstein. What she saw in the man I cannot imagine, but she was always asking him up to the house, and often went off for long expeditions with him. I must confess that I was quite unable to see his attraction. The 16th of July fell on a Monday. It was a day of turmoil. The famous bazaar had taken place on Saturday, and an entertainment in connection with the same charity, at which Mrs. Inglethorpe was to recite a war poem, was to be held that night. We were all busy during the morning arranging and decorating the hall in the village where it was to take place. "'We had a late luncheon and spent the afternoon resting in the garden. "'I noticed that John's manner was somewhat unusual. "'He seemed very excited and restless. "'After tea, Mrs. Inglethorpe went to lie down to rest before her efforts in the evening, "'and I challenged Mary Cavendish to a single at tennis. "'About a quarter to seven, Mrs. Inglethorpe called us that we should be late, "'as supper was early that night.' We had rather a scramble to get ready in time, and before the meal was over the motor was waiting at the door. The entertainment was a great success, Mrs. Inglethorpe's recitation receiving tremendous applause. There were also some tableau in which Cynthia took part. She did not return with us, having been asked to a supper-party and to remain the night with some friends who had been acting with her in the tableau. The following morning Mrs. Inglethorpe stayed in bed to breakfast— as she was rather overtired. But she appeared in her briskest mood about twelve-thirty, and swept Lawrence and myself off to a luncheon party. "'Such a charming invitation from Mrs. Rolleston. Lady Tadminster's sister, you know. The Rollestons came over with the Conqueror, one of our oldest families.' Mary had excused herself on the plea of an engagement with Dr. Bowerstein. We had a pleasant luncheon, and as we drove away, Lawrence suggested that we should return by Tadminster, which was barely a mile out of our way, and pay a visit to Cynthia in her dispensary. Mrs. Inglethorpe replied that this was an excellent idea, but as she had several letters to write, she would drop us there, and we could come back with Cynthia in the pony-trap. We were detained under suspicion by the hospital porter, until Cynthia appeared to vouch for us looking very cool and sweet in her long white overall. She took us up to her sanctum and introduced us to her fellow dispenser, a rather awe-inspiring individual whom Cynthia cheerily addressed as nibs. What a lot of bottles, I exclaimed, as my eye traveled round the small room. Do you really know what's in them all? Say something original, groaned Cynthia. Every single person who comes up here says that. We are really thinking of bestowing a prize on the first individual who does not say, what a lot of bottles. And I know the next thing you're going to say is, how many people have you poisoned? I pleaded guilty with a laugh. If you people only knew how fatally easy it is to poison someone by mistake, you wouldn't joke about it. Come on, let's have tea. We've got all sorts of secret stories in that cupboard. No, Lawrence, that's the poison cupboard. The big cupboard. That's right. We had a very cheery tea, and assisted Cynthia to wash up afterwards. We had just put away the last teaspoon when a knock came at the door. The countenances of Cynthia and Nibs were suddenly petrified into a stern and forbidding expression. "'Come in,' said Cynthia, in a sharp, professional tone. A young and rather scared-looking nurse appeared with a bottle, which she proffered to Nibs, who waved her towards Cynthia with the somewhat enigmatical remark— I'm not really here today. Cynthia took the bottle and examined it with the severity of a judge. This should have been sent up this morning. Sister is very sorry. She forgot. Sister should read the rules outside the door. I gathered from the little nurse's expression that there was not the least likelihood of her having the hardihood to retail this message to the dreaded sister. So now it can't be done until tomorrow, finished Cynthia. Don't you think you could possibly let us have it tonight? Well, said Cynthia graciously, we are very busy, but if we have time, it shall be done. The little nurse withdrew, and Cynthia promptly took a jar from the shelf, refilled the bottle, and placed it on the table outside the door. I laughed. Discipline must be maintained? Exactly. Come out on our little balcony. You can see all the outside wards there. I followed Cynthia and her friend, and they pointed out the different wards to me. Lawrence remained behind, but after a few moments Cynthia called to him over her shoulder to come and join us. Then she looked at her watch. Nothing more to do, Nibs? No. All right, then we can lock up and go. I had seen Lawrence in quite a different light that afternoon. Compared to John, he was an astoundingly difficult person to get to know. He was the opposite of his brother in almost every respect, being unusually shy and reserved yet he had a certain charm of manner, and I fancied that if one really knew him well, one could have a deep affection for him. I had always fancied that his manner to Cynthia was rather constrained, and that she on her side was inclined to be shy of him, but they were both gay enough this afternoon, and chatted together like a couple of children. As we drove through the village, I remembered that I wanted some stamps, so accordingly we pulled up at the post-office. As I came out again, I cannoned into a little man who was just entering. I drew aside and apologized, when suddenly, with a loud exclamation, he clasped me in his arms and kissed me warmly. "'Mon ami Hastings!' he cried. "'It is indeed Mon ami Hastings!' "'Perrot!' I exclaimed. I turned to the pony-trap. "'This is a very pleasant meeting for me, Miss Cynthia. "'This is my old friend, Monsieur Perrot, whom I have not seen for years.' "'Oh, we know Monsieur Perrault,' said Cynthia gaily, "'but I had no idea he was a friend of yours.' "'Yes, indeed,' said Perrault, seriously. "'I know Mademoiselle Cynthia. "'It is by the charity of that good Mrs. Inglethorpe that I am here.' Then, as I looked at him inquiringly, "'Yes, my friend, she had kindly extended hospitality to seven of my country people, "'who, alas, are refugees from their native land. "'We Belgians will always remember her with gratitude.' Perot was an extraordinary-looking little man. He was hardly more than five feet four inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always perched it a little on one side. His mustache was very stiff and military. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound." Yet this quaint, dandified little man, who I was sorry to see now limped badly, had been, in his time, one of the most celebrated members of the Belgian police. As a detective, his flair had been extraordinary, and he had achieved triumphs by unraveling some of the most baffling cases of the day. He pointed out to me the little house inhabited by him and his fellow Belgians, and I promised to go and see him at an early date. Then he raised his hat with a flourish to Cynthia, and we drove away. "'He's a dear little man,' said Cynthia. "'I'd no idea you knew him.' "'You've been entertaining a celebrity unawares,' I replied. And for the rest of the way home I recited to them the various exploits and triumphs of Hercule Perrault. We arrived back in a very cheerful mood. As we entered the hall, Mrs. Inglethorpe came out of her boudoir. She looked flushed and upset. "'Oh, it's you,' she said. "'Is there anything the matter, Aunt Emily?' asked Cynthia. "'Certainly not,' said Mrs. Inglethorpe sharply. "'What should there be?' Then, catching sight of Dorcas, the parlor-maid, going into the dining-room, she called to her to bring some stamps into the boudoir. "'Yes, am The old servant hesitated, then added diffidently, "'Don't you think, am you'd rather go to bed? You're looking very tired.' Oh, "'Perhaps you're right, Dorcas. Yes. "'No.' not now. I have some letters I must finish by post-time. Have you lighted the fire in my room, as I told you? Yes, am Then I'll go to bed directly after supper. She went into the boudoir again, and Cynthia stared after her. "'Goodness gracious! I wonder what's up?' she said to Lawrence. He did not seem to have heard her, for without a word he turned on his heel and went out of the house.' I suggested a quick game of tennis before supper, and Cynthia agreeing, I ran upstairs to fetch my racket. Mrs. Cavendish was coming down the stairs. It may have been my fancy, but she too was looking odd and disturbed. Had a good talk with Dr. Bowerstein, I asked, trying to appear as indifferent as I could. I didn't go, she replied abruptly. Where is Mrs. Inglethorpe in the boudoir? Her hand clenched itself on the banisters. Then she seemed to nerve herself for some encounter and went rapidly past me, down the stairs, across the hall to the boudoir, the door of which she shut behind her. As I ran out to the tennis court a few moments later, I had to pass the open boudoir window and was unable to help overhearing the following scrap of dialogue. Mary Cavendish was saying in the voice of a woman desperately controlling herself, "'Then you won't show it to me!' To which Mrs. Inglethorpe replied, My dear Mary, it has nothing to do with that matter. Then show it to me. I tell you, it is not what you imagine. It does not concern you in the least. To which Mary Cavendish replied, with a rising bitterness, Of course, I might have known you would shield him. Cynthia was waiting for me, and greeted me eagerly with, I say, there's been the most awful row. I've got it all out of Dorcas. What kind of a row? Between Aunt Emily and him, I do hope she's found him out at last. Was Dorcas there, then? Of course not. She happened to be near the door. It was a real old bust-up. I do wish I knew what it was all about. I thought of Mrs. Rakes's gypsy face and Evelyn Howard's warnings, but wisely decided to hold my peace, while Cynthia exhausted every possible hypothesis— and cheerfully hoped Aunt Emily will send him away and will never speak to him again. I was anxious to get hold of John, but he was nowhere to be seen. Evidently, something very momentous had occurred that afternoon. I tried to forget the few words I had overheard, but, do what I would, I could not dismiss them altogether from my mind. What was Mary Cavendish's concern in the matter?' Mr. Inglethorpe was in the drawing-room when I came down to supper. His face was impassive as ever, and the strange unreality of the man struck me afresh. Mrs. Inglethorpe came down last. She still looked agitated, and during the meal there was a somewhat constrained silence. Inglethorpe was unusually quiet. As a rule, he surrounded his wife with little attentions, placing a cushion at her back and altogether playing the part of the devoted husband. Immediately after supper, Mrs. Inglethorpe retired to her boudoir again. "'Send my coffee in here, Mary,' she called. "'I've just five minutes to catch the post.' Cynthia and I went and sat by the open window in the drawing-room. Mary Cavendish brought our coffee to us. She seemed excited. "'Do you young people want lights, or do you enjoy the twilight?' she asked. "'Will you take Mrs. Inglethorpe her coffee, Cynthia? I will pour it out.' "'Do not trouble, Mary.' said Inglethorpe. I will take it to Emily. He poured it out and went out of the room, carrying it carefully. Lawrence followed him, and Mrs. Cavendish sat down by us. We three sat for some time in silence. It was a glorious night, hot and still. Mrs. Cavendish fanned herself gently with a palm leaf. "'It's almost too hot,' she murmured. "'We shall have a thunderstorm.' Alas, that these harmonious moments can never endure! My paradise was rudely shattered by the sound of a well-known and heartily disliked voice in the hall. "'Dr. Bowerstein!' exclaimed Cynthia. "'What a funny time to come!' I glanced jealously at Mary Cavendish, but she seemed quite undisturbed. The delicate pallor of her cheeks did not vary. In a few moments Alfred Ingerthorpe had ushered the doctor in, the latter laughing and protesting that he was in no fit state for a drawing-room. In truth, he presented a sorry spectacle, being literally plastered with mud. "'What have you been doing, doctor?' cried Mrs. Cavendish. "'I must make my apologies,' said the doctor. "'I did not really mean to come in, but Mr. Inglethorpe insisted.' "'Well, Bowerstein, you are in a plight,' said John, strolling in from the hall. "'Have some coffee, and tell us what you've been up to.' "'Thank you, I will.' He laughed rather ruefully as he described how he had discovered a very rare species of fern in an inaccessible place, and in his efforts to obtain it had lost his footing and slipped ignominiously into a neighboring pond. "'The sun soon dried me off,' he added, "'but I'm afraid my appearance is very disreputable.' At this juncture Mrs. Inglethorpe called to Cynthia from the hall, and the girl ran out. "'Just carry up my despatch case, will you, dear? I'm going to bed.' the door into the hall was a wide one. I had risen when Cynthia did. John was close by me. There were therefore three witnesses who could swear that Mrs. Inglethorpe was carrying her coffee, as yet untasted, in her hand. My evening was utterly and entirely spoilt by the presence of Dr. Bowerstein. It seemed to me the man would never go. He rose at last, however, and I breathed a sigh of relief. I'll walk down to the village with you, said Mr. Inglethorpe. I must see our agent over those estate accounts. He turned to John. No one needs sit up. I will take the latchkey. Radio Read-Along is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, featuring weekly episodes from the world's best stories. Want to listen ahead? Find this entire novel, along with an ever-expanding library of classic literature recordings, inside the Pelican Society at pelicansociety.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.